That was my best whistling. That though. was so close. It it's, was so. I close. mean, Disney. It's pretty, hi, it's pretty I'm, recognizable, I'm actually. Yeah. Hey, Gavin. Hey, Louie. Welcome, everyone, to the mixed reviews. It's just you and me this time. It is. It's just. It's. It's been a while since we've done a solo act. Hi, and welcome to the mixed reviews. Uh, we're a podcast in which we we talk about movies. We take a genre or an actor and actress. We dissect. We do a little book report, if you will. Absolutely. And uh, and then we like mix up the reviews. We say what we think works, what didn't. And uh, we have a, a, a grand old time doing it. Absolutely. Um, bef- last episode, we talked about Nicole Kidman. Absolutely. We had Mr. Glenn, Glenn Dunks, Dunks, actual Australian, actual kid maniac himself. <laughs> yes. Thank you, Glenn, for coming on. He's a card carrying. He has, yeah, you know. Yeah, it's a hard process to get through. Absolutely. I was denied. <laughs> Which, homophobia. They were like, you've only seen 30 of the 9 million movies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They were like, um, you haven't seen, what's the, what, what did I, I did not see BMX. Bandits? Yeah. Yep. That was Sorry. like, strike one. Yeah. <laughs> one, two, and three, actually. <laughs> so we, after the episode, I told you, we told you guys to go online and to vote on Twitter for your favorite Nicole Kidman movie. And here are the results. In a, a three-way tie for last place, I guess. Um, um I think, I think To Die For has one, one more. <laughs> I said virtual tie. Okay, fine. So, <laughs> Birth and Other came in at 17%. Um, Birth was Glenn's pick. To Die For, eking out the silver medal. Um, yeah, I may have done some campaigning. Oh, my. At the goodness. very last minute. Like, guys, save me. You, you called people that you knew. Yeah. <laughs> Get to the Twitter page. Um, my pick, uh, Moulin Rouge, came in at 48%. Um, I think was unsurprising. It's probably her most uh, well-known or commercially viable Absolutely. movie. And it's it's not a bad pick. So and I it's not a bad not, pick. Yeah, I do uh, not blame anybody for Um We had other people, though, uh, send, send us some of their picks. Um, the Hours um, was mentioned. Um, fur was mentioned, uh, probably just a, a bit sarcastically, but also like, I genuinely know people who love that movie, and uh, it's it's not my favorite, but people seemed there, there's a lot to pick from. Yeah, the others, uh, there were there were people campaigning more for birth, uh, so good for good for them. I was actually a little surprised that uh, birth didn't, you know, that did so low. But once again, as you mentioned, like it's it's that everybody's seen, yeah, Moulin Rouge, yeah, absolutely. But enough about Nicole. Um, for this episode, we are having a very special, um, non-news related episode. Yeah. Where we just decided, uh, let's take a, a swim under the sea, if you will. <laughs> to, um, are we going to go the distance? We are going to go the distance. Out there? Um, we'll make a man out of you. <sighs> We're talking about the Disney Renaissance. Absolutely. Um, Leonardo da Vinci, Michelangelo, yes. Rafa- oh no, all our is, favorite Ninja Turtles. That is all of our favorite. The real Renaissance. <laughs> um, we love Disney. Who doesn't love Disney? I'll say right off the bat, there is so much scholarship, journalism, <clears throat> um, punditry, if you will, about this topic. I feel like uh, people of our generation grew up on these movies. It is Absolutely. the soundtrack to our childhood um the, you know it, the, clearly we're in that like you know cannibalistic state where disney is just like eating itself and then like right. regurgitating live action remakes of these movies now and then on top of that buying other every other existing company in order to not have to make remakes they can just make the money off of everybody else's existing ips yeah so um it's interesting. I think we're going to have a good time <laughs> wading through, uh, you know, all this stuff. It's hard also because the Disney Renaissance is known 
I mean, that that is not like that is like a fan made term. Like Disney right. was not like this was our renaissance. Right. Um, Absolutely. It, it's kind of like fans realize, oh, when that fucking movie came out in 1988, like shit starts to get real and it's different. And compared to and then at the end, like in 99, people were like, oh, <laughs> right. Disney's not doing it no more. Um, but we'll talk about like some history, what makes the Renaissance the Renaissance, um, the key players. Um, yeah, anything else to say before we get started? No, I think that's a perfect way to intro us into our rewind. The Disney Renaissance, for most human beings, starts in 1988 and goes all the way to 1999, starting with Little Mermaid, ending with Tarzan. However, I think it's important to backtrack a little bit before then. Absolutely. There are a couple of movies and key figures that entered Disney to really set the plate for um, all of the success of the Renaissance. So picture this, 1984. <laughs> In 1984, Walt Disney is not doing well. And by Walt Disney, I don't mean the person because he's already dead. Yeah, he's really not doing <laughs> he's well. He's not doing well. He's been super dead <laughs> for like 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Walt Disney Productions, I mean, specifically, or not even, just Walt Disney Productions itself is yeah. not doing well. The board, if you will, is getting a little money hungry. They're noticing that Walt Disney has not had a live movie right. with humans that has made a lot of money. And Ron Miller, who is the company president, is forced to resign. While he was in charge, he executive produced four movies that kind of like had done okay, but had kind of taken a while to come out. Those were um, The Aristocats in 1970, Robin Hood, um, The Rescuers, and The Fox and the Hound. You know, they were like, fine. Right. You know, they did okay, but it took a long time for those to come out. They were really expensive, and specifically the animated division was only making like 13% of their money. Like they were, it was, it lost a lot of money to create these things because they were labor intensive movies to make. Right. We'll talk about labor in a bit. To replace Roy Miller, who was at, he was the son-in-law of Walt Disney. So he was still in the La Familia. Yeah. But, um, people with money were like, nah, get out. <laughs> they bring in Michael Eisner, um, who was the president of Paramount Pictures. Right. Um, and, and, and he's like, well, the funny thing is, he's not a money guy. Like, most people would be like, let's bring in a banker. But he's an English, like, he has an English degree. Michael wasn't an MBA. He was an English major. He grew up in New York, where one of his first jobs was programming kids' television for ABC. And Michael had an amazing track record coming from Paramount. He had hits, Oscar nominations, Terms of Endearment. He was a winner. They bring him over. He brings over uh, with him Jeffrey Katzenberg, yes. who was his head of production over at Paramount. Um, and they had made, you know, Saturday Night Fever, Ordinary People, and Star Trek, which were these, like, live-action movies that made a bunch of fucking money. Um, and um, I'm reading off a New York Times article um, about how The Great Mouse Detective was giving clues to the future of Disney animation. Um, and so bringing on these two kind of, like, businessy guys who were famous for live-action things, um, animators... Uh, were kind of scared or nervous, and they um, referred to their studio under its new leadership as, quote, Paramouse. So, tensions were high. Um, they, they There was a feeling in the air that, you know, things were not looking well anymore. I mean, after Disney had died, there was like, was it the old nine men? The nine old men? Nine old men, yeah. Those were the animators who were like the classics who were doing all those right. uh, famous Disney movies. 
And um, every story sort of had to go through them. Right. They, they were the old guard. They were the physical embodiment of the old guard. Right. Before, when Ron Miller was there, he had hired a bunch of new um, up-and-coming characters um, to make to start making these movies just because these guys were fucking old. And also without Walt Disney, they were just kind of like rudderless. You know, it, it didn't feel like they were um, going anywhere. And so it led to a lot of like internal tension in the studio with like the younger, newer, fresh guys who wanted to shake things up right. and the old guard who still like were kind of holding a grip really tightly around anything that happened there. With now... Um, Katzenberg and Eisner around though, like shit was about to hit the fan. Right. They essentially are like, listen, we need to increase output and decrease costs. You know, it takes too long to make these movies and it's too expensive. Um, when they were got brought on, uh, the, the Black Cauldron was like basically done, almost done. Um, and that movie was $44 million to make the most expensive at the time animated movie ever. And it was also very like ooky spooky, yeah. um, dark and creepy. Now I call on my army of the dead, the cauldron born. Arise my messengers of death. Our They were shown like, like an, an early a, cut, an early cut, and they were like, "Fuck no!" Yeah, and they had them cut like over ten minutes of the movie, right? And on top of that, not an easy thing to do. I mean, most first of all, most of these animators didn't believe in the fact that you could edit an animated right. film. You have to edit some of these things out. And they said, "Well, you can't edit an animated movie." And I said, "Well, of course you can edit an animated movie." And they said, well, "No, you can't." Hey, no, you don't. You honestly, you would think that I was causing World War III there at the studio because I literally said, "Well, you know what? You get the film and bring it to an edit bay, and uh, I'm going to show you how you edit an animated movie." I... But also, they were condensing a massive story. The Black Cauldron is five books, and they put it into one ninety-minute film. Yeah. So they they were playing with fire to begin with. Right. And they so they asked them to increase um output and unlike this forty four million dollar disaster flop, they wanted movies to be made in like the ten million dollar range. An animator at the time was quoted saying, When the new management sets such a schedule on such a budget, is the animator going to have enough time to explore and study, to do research on the characters and experimental animation, time to throw away something that he or she feels doesn't work and try again? Are they going to allow time for that? And the answer really was no. You know, um, this old way of, uh, working was like Disney's way. It was kind of like, you really get to sit with the material. You really get to like, wait and see what clicks, what doesn't, um, under these new rules. It was just like, we don't have the luxury. Yeah. When I first got the job there, they said, okay, you're going to be working seven days a week and you'll probably be working 12 hours a day, you know, at the least. We were all really killing ourselves to get the movie done on time. We worked like 80 hour weeks. And we're talking like six o'clock in the morning to midnight a lot of times. You know, there's a couple times I slept at my desk. I remember Sue Lance on Beauty and the Beast. We we could we we worked every weekend, so no one could do their laundry. And she just says, you know, I keep going to this Kmart and buying more underwear because I don't have time to. Do. It was that was the funniest thing in the world, you know. It was draining. You know, people talked about the overtime and how sick they got. Um, you know, from all this drawing and tendonitis and and losing friends and divorces will all happen because we had to work so hard. Black Cauldron flops in 85. It's the first PG movie also for Disney. Um, for their animated... For, yeah. yeah, for their animated division. Um, 
to uh, make matters worse. I mean, that kind of like, they were like, okay, fuck you guys. On top of that, they decide to <laughs> move the entire animation studios out of Burbank at the main lot into literally trailers and warehouses yep. in Glendale. Um, if you ever, like, I remember in school they had, what were they called? Portables. Yes. Going, like, going, and, you know, you're not in the main campus, you're in the portables out in the back by, like, the trash and shit. That's where, it was their temporary space. You see, in the early 80s, new management decided to kick the animators out of their building and off the studio lot. After all, what does animation have to do with the Walt Disney Company anyway? And they did that because they wanted to make room at their main lot for these live action movies. And they said it was temporary. They ended up staying there for 10 years. Very casual. It, it, it kind of just like animators understood where they were ranking on the totem pole yes. of importance. Yeah. Um, somewhere below janitors. <laughs> somewhere around there. Yeah. Disney has also already started making um, The Great Mouse Detective at the time known as Basil of Baker Street. Thank you. Um, and it's essentially Sherlock Holmes, but mice. Yeah. Um, and starring Vincent Price. Starring Vincent Price. That's <laughs> right again. Um so good. <laughs> also, that movie's not a musical, but there's like three musical numbers. Yeah. Two of them are his. It's, it's, I was going to say, it's a very, the very teen witch atmosphere. <laughs> very, like, that. like, very that. Not a musical, but we're going to stop for a musical number. Um, and they kind of are, that's their first, um, realization that like, oh, things are going to be fucking different. They make them change the name of the movie because they thought that Basil Backstreet didn't mean anything. Right. It's like a mild success. It does well enough. During this time, Don Bluth is putting out a bunch of movies. Yes. Kicking ass, taking names. And Don Bluth was a animator back in 1979 yes. who had left and like taken a buttload of other animators yeah. who had grown frustrated with, um, they, they were the new kids. They were like, we have ideas. We want to do shit. And, um, at every step, you know, they were just getting blocked. And so he's like, fine, I'll leave. Um, and during this time with Great Mouse Detective, I think it was an American tale. Which also had the power of Steven Spielberg behind it. Right. Which is a huge deal. And so all this to say that Don Bluth, I don't think we talk about a lot about him, but it's like the, the studio doesn't believe in the animators. Right. Um, they had a huge fucking dismal bomb in the Black Cauldron. And one of their ex members is now out there making movies, putting them out on the, on the same release dates as Disney's movies and beating them at the box office. You know, Disney's movies up against it were uh, The Great Mouse Detective and Oliver and & Company. And Oliver & Company was the first movie that Eisner and Katzenberg completely oversaw from beginning to end. Oliver & Company was greenlit via Eisner and Katzenberg's uh, new gong show approach. Yes. Where they literally would just like sit around and animators would go and pitch a bajillion ideas. Um, and if they got the gong, they'd be like, no, next. Yeah. Uh, and that was their kind of like fast way to like throw ideas out. And that was uh, the two of them being like, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no, yes, no. Yeah, yeah. In, in 1985, uh, Gong Show, um, John Rusker and Ron Clements suggested two bro- projects, Treasure Island in Space and Little Mermaid. Um, neither of those got picked up. No. <laughs> um, so in 88, just to like zip through up to, um, in 88, uh, Disney collaborated with Steven Spielberg on Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Um, no one in California worked on that movie. All the animation was done, um, in, uh, London. London. Right. Um, and, but Who Framed Roger Rabbit is important because it's a huge success. Right. And they're kind of like shocked that this is, it makes a lot of money. Critics love it. And it, that is, um, that's truly where they are like, okay, 
we can really come back with um, a full animated movie and make make money, be critically acclaimed. Now the stage is set. The full length animation. You have made a promise to do one film a year. Is that it? Well, Roy made it. So we, uh, <laughs> we jointly made that. Right? <laughs> and so to meet demands from that, they have to go back to old pitches um, and underdeveloped ideas to get like to satisfy those needs um and little mermaid was actually one of them because little mermaid had been floating around since the 30s um and even some of the work that they had done in the 30s resurfaces and i want to say one of the writers is credited on the I actual so. movie yeah i think that's true because beauty and the beast was also a pitch that walt disney yeah. himself had worked on yeah um and so it had been rejected during the oliver and Co- company um gong show um, and quote, at the time, Disney was in development on a sequel to Splash that went nowhere. And Katzenberg and Eisner were concerned that an animated mermaid movie would be too similar in alien audiences. Um, Ron Clements, though, he wrote a two page treatment anyway, sent it to Katzenberg. And um, because he was so passionate about the project, um, it was greenlit into production. The Little Mermaid was huge in a lot of different ways. Clearly, people fucking love it. We all know kind of like the basic yeah. reason why it was huge. But it was the first like female centric movie that they had made in a long while. I think the last right. one was the Aristocats in 1970. Right. Um, and this is kind of like the same fucking trope that they bring out over and over again that girl stuff isn't in. Yeah. Movies about the- girls, about princesses were not, are, you know, alienating and. Right. They, the, the log line is, is that boys won't go see movies about girls, which right. is patently false. Yeah. Fucking. Bullshit. Yeah. It was also their first fairy tale since yeah. Sleeping Beauty in the 1960s. Right. And I think that's, like, important to note because Sleeping Beauty was such a fucking bomb. Yeah. And so that's, I, I mean, you can read elsewhere about, like, the Bronze Age or, quote, the Dark Age yeah. of Disney. But, like, literally it's that time after Sleeping Beauty where um, they were, it was like, okay, fuck f- f- all right. um, fairy tales. Which bums me out because Sleeping Beauty is my personal favorite. So Little Mermaid's greenlit. Um, very importantly, also we have to talk about Howard Ashman and Alan Menken. Absolutely, they are. Um, they're recommended to. Is it to Katzenberg? Or they're, yeah, they're um, recommended by, to, to by David Geffen. By David Geffen, who had, was producing Little Shop of Horrors and right. Smile at the time. Little Shop of Horrors, huge success. Smile, a huge bomb, right. and so. <laughs> The essentially Mencken and Ashman uh, were looking for work for hire. And when they were introduced to Disney, Ashman jumped at the chance. He was not really seen as the, you know, in the documentary Waking Sleeping Beauty, they talk about how he wasn't seen as the perfect fit for Disney. He was kind of edgy. He was an out gay man and he loved musicals, but he really wanted to bring the idea that the animated musical was the future of musicals. It yeah. was the the two mediums that worked perfectly together. Yeah, and he was like that snappy, witty, you know, um fast talking, uh like stereotypical like gay man from New York. Yeah. Who just was like he knew the references, he knew the work, he was getting there. They were originally uh, brought on to do the opening number of Oliver and Company. And it's from there that Katzenberg decides to hire both Ashman and Mankin, because only Ashman did um, Oliver and Company. Yeah. Hires them both on to do Little Mermaid. And there's lots of stories how, you know, it was Ashman's idea to make Sebastian Sebastian. Right. He was before a, like, kind of stuffy, um, old butler. Yeah. British. British. British butler. And, and he came in and was like, what if he's Jamaican? Which is funny, because actually the actor has since said that the accent is Trinidadian. Oh. But... 
you know, he came in and he came in with all these ideas. And what's interesting was, I think the thing that Howard Ashman brings to Disney was the ability to never speak down to the audience. He knew he was making kids movies. He knew who would be seeing these films, but his wit was the perfect combination of one for the adults, one for the kids. And what he does when he comes into the process is not only is he writing lyrics to these songs, he starts basically rearranging the plots of these yeah. movies. And he's given great moments in the film. He actually wrote the scene at the end between Sebastian and King Triton when they're talking about kids. Mm. And i that's maybe one of the most sentimental moments in the film. She really does love him, doesn't she, Sebastian? Mm. Well... It's like I always say, Your Majesty. Children got to be free to lead their own lives. You always say that? <laughs> oh. Then I guess there's just one problem left. And what's that, Your Majesty? How much I'm going to miss her. The way his brain worked is so important to the Disney Renaissance. Absolutely. Um, and I think it's funny, I, maybe we skipped ahead a little bit, but thinking about like what makes a Disney Renaissance or what makes a Disney movie like a movie of the Disney Renaissance, they all have the same feeling. And it's not just like they, they look differently. So right. they look different. They sound different. A lot of the sound is because of Alan Menken and Howard Ashman. Um, but also visually, they're so big. Right. The, when you think about the classic scenes, when you think of like the huge, um, opening of, Lion King and Pride Rock. You think of Hunchback and the huge bell towers and you see all of Paris. Um, the entirety of Agrabah yeah. and Aladdin. You think even Rescuers Down Under, you yeah. see huge sweeping shots of Australia. These movies had a huge, huge, um, settings and feelings of like kind of bigness and, um, out there in this, this huge big world. And focusing on this, like, one person or this right. one thing who is trying to find their place. And and that's the other thing is, no matter how large the vista um, that you're visiting in these films, it often comes back to a kind of small story mm -hmm. about a person attempting to find where they belong. Yeah. And, and that kind of... Um and every movie has like different kind of permutations of it, but it's, it's, it's always around that. Um, and that maybe is what led to like, uh, fatigue at the end of the Renaissance. Um, who knows? But, uh, it, there, there, there are things when you think about like movies beforehand, like you don't get that sense when watching, say, 101 Dalmatians. Right. You know, um, obviously visually they look different, but even just like the scale of, uh, the things you're looking at are, um, a, lo a lot different. Anyway, The Little Mermaid really just is a fucking game changer. When I saw this movie again for this episode, um, the beginning started and I was like, have I seen Little Mermaid? <laughs> Fully had forgotten about that first scene where like the, the sailors with the sailors and like the dolphins are like swinging and shit. Um, and gotta say, like the animation is shaky. Like it's yeah. not the most beautiful movie, like well animated thing. You can tell that they were like rushing and like, you know, uh, did not have the um i don't know maybe the the skill that they had um had previously and would have later yeah. just because they were at such a fucking like low point in I, I even felt the same way about rewatching beauty and the beast which i think is an absolutely gorgeous film so it's not 
a slight to it to say that there are times when you look at Belle's face and you're like, what is happening? Right, yeah. What is, what face is that? What face is she making? And you can, I mean, it's a... I think that's just something like when you watching old animated movies, you can tell which ones they put a lot of care and time yeah. into. And other times when they were like, we have a fucking deadline and that's just it. Um, important thing to note about, uh, Little Mermaid. Um, Jeffrey Katzenberg is still kind of like looming as this, um, maniacal figure who is all about facts and data and after test screenings, he wanted to cut part of your world. Yes. Which is insane to think about. Yeah. And Howard he, Ashman, like, lost his fucking mind. And it's in so much of the movie. It's in yeah. the score everywhere. Like, it's such an important piece. And and Howard Ashman, um, he's talked about this before, and there's lots of interviews where he's like, this is like, it sets the stage for all of these movies, the I Want song. In almost every musical ever written, there's a place, it's usually about the third song of the evening. Sometimes it's the second, sometimes it's the fourth, but it's quite early. And the leading lady usually sits down on something. Sometimes it's a tree stump in Brigadoon. Sometimes it's um, under the pillars of Covent Garden in My Fair Lady, or it's a trash can in Little Shop of Horrors. But the leading lady sits down on something and sings about what she wants in life. And the audience falls in love with her and then roots for her to get it for the rest of the night. Up where they walk, up where they run, up where they stay all day in the sun, wandering free. Wish I could be part of that world. Bonjour. Good day. Who is your wife? I need six eggs. That's too expensive. There must be more than this provincial life. They'd find out. There's so much more to me. The movie's a huge hit. Roger Ebert says, Here at last, once again, is a kind of liberating, original, joyful Disney animation that we all remember from Snow White, Pinocchio, and the other first-generation classics. Which is huge. Like, I mean, like, this is kind of like, this is the clarion call that Disney is back. In 1990, the movie won the Academy Award and the Golden Globe for Best Score and Best Song um, for Under the Sea. Which, again, is directly linked to Howard Ashman being like, we should do this Jamaican kind of fun, uh, you know... A different idea for when they go out, out on the sea. In 1990, uh, Mike Gabriel directs The Rescuers Down Under, which, um, is kind of like a weird hiccup. Yeah. It's a kind of a, it, it's, first of all, it's the first ever Disney sequel to yeah. an animated film. Something Walt Disney essentially was like, I will roll in my grave. So he must have been spinning that day. Yeah. Um, Katzenberg essentially said to, uh, in an interview, I wanted to do an action adventure movie, which Disney's never done. Okay, cool. Um, <laughs> and which is wild because he had even like, there, while these movies are coming out, obviously there 
pre-production happening on movies ahead. So Beauty and the Beast had, had even already started coming up in production. But he straight up was like, this will not be a musical. This will be action adventure. We want boys to come see this movie. I think he wanted to prove that like, uh, he, they can make movies not only about little mermaids and like, right. for girls, but also about fucking little boys named Cody in Australia who are fucking like riding eagles and shit. Ugh. I think it's very fucking cute and charming that yeah. there's a network of mice around the world who are tasked with saving children. It is so cute to me. And also, Eva Gabor. God, yeah. Yeah. please. And Bob Newhart. I actually think Bob Newhart's giving a really good performance. As they like, are. Like, I'm I'm that cute chubby klutz. I, <laughs> like, who's just trying to get married. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> um, the, the important thing about Rescuers, first of all, that opening scene is incredible. Like, yes. Huge wide pan in. Um, I believe Pixar was the one who made that for them. Yes. Which is um the beginning of a beautiful relationship. Let's say that. <laughs> Uh, a very m- m- fortuitous one. Yeah. This was the first movie that they used um, CAPS, or Computer Animation Production System. All the old way of making movies was over. It was yeah. done. No more cell, um, you know, painting on the, the laminates. And yeah. um, it was all it, computer. It was it made it much easier for them to composite each separate image on top of each other and move it around in a way that they'd never been able to do before. Because, as you were saying before, it's cell animation. One yeah. on top of the other. And that was, harder. and that was like, again, going back to hard labor. It took a long, yeah. long time, um, for them to do each and every single one of those just to get one right. second of one scene. And so finally, after the success of Little Mermaid, the animators were able to get Disney to invest right. in new technology. And that's exactly what it was, is they were like, listen, we made money. Please reinvest it into us so we can continue to make you more money. This, and I will say this again and again, as many times as I've had jobs in this industry, <laughs> You have to spend money to make money. Amen. I know it's a cliche, but it is 100% true. Yep. If you're working for a podcast for the largest comic book store in America, <laughs> they have to spend money advertising you so you can advertise them. It's the simple truth. Drag. Um, <laughs> this was actually Eva Gabor's last film she made. She passed away um, after that. Um, I've... In case we don't talk about this movie again, I think Joanna is so fucking funny. Joanna is like the ba- the bad guys. Um, Not just funny though. I I have to admit, tragic, tragic. Yeah, <laughs> Joanna is the is the and Frank Welker who is a staple. And you're like, if we don't bring up his name again, like just know Frank Welker is maybe the the most famous voiceover artist we have. You know, he is. Abu in mm-hmm. Aladdin. He's Joanna. He's the Cave of Wonders. He just, he can do any animal. I think he's, uh, the raccoon in Pocahontas. Nico. Nico. So like, he, yeah, he can do any animal sound, whatever. Like he's a great and amazing. So he's the voice of Joanna. But yeah, Joanna is, uh, uh, the bad guy's lizard. Yeah. I know. Who what, loves eggs. Yeah, who loves eggs. <laughs> Joanna, eggs. Egg. <laughs> um, you eat my eggs, Joanna. Um, and like I I just love like it's this poor abused creature. Yeah. And like I love that it's not punished in the end. I know. Spoiler alert, sorry. But. Yeah, in the end Joanna survives and the bad yeah. guy doesn't. Bye. Yeah. <laughs> um also this movie's weird. The kid can talk to animals. Yes. Um and they talk back to him. Joanna can't talk. And neither can the eagle. And neither can the eagle. It's very weird. Which is weird because fucking albatrosses can talk. Yeah, it's very, very bizarre yeah. and that's i would say that's maybe um one of the reasons why it's not or i don't know it's 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 weird um moving along 
1991, Beauty and the Beast is released, um, directed by Gary Truesdale and Kirk Wise, who, who were the second directors. The first directors were removed after they did a 20-minute presentation mm-hmm. presenting the first 20 minutes of the film to Katzenberg yep. of a non-musical version of Beauty and the yeah. Beast. Yeah. And it didn't work at all. And Katzenberg was like, start from the beginning. From the beginning, and we're not moving our release date. Also important for this movie, Eisner was like, you know what, guys? I think we should have a screenwriter. And the animators were like, what's that? <laughs> we don't do that here. And Eisner was like, you fucking do now. In the past, the animators would work collaboratively and they were the ones writing the scripts. Eisner insisted on having a screenwriter. And so he hired, um, Linda Wolverton, who was known for her work on the children's shows Chippendale, Rescue Rangers, and the Bernstein Bears. According to a producer, Don Hahn, he said, um, the storyboard artists weren't used to having a screenwriter in the room, and Linda, Linda's manner at times could be combative. So essentially, they hated having her on. Um, like Gavin said, they had the 20 minutes of footage. It was no songs. The, the enchanted creatures didn't have faces. Um, it was essentially less whimsy and more mimsy. So Katzenberg was like, no, this doesn't work. We need it to be a musical, which is insane, though, because at the same time, he was like, wanting this to be a musical, he did not want music for right. Rescuers. Which, right. Because he, I guess but he, he knew where the money is. Right. Katzenberg famously at one point told them he didn't care about the Academy. He wanted Bank of America Awards. Oh, shit, really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh yeah. And that really upset the artists, because guess what? They're called artists. Yeah, Hello. Katzenberg's mind, he's like, okay, well, we need directors, maybe. And so he brought on, um, he brought on Ashman and Mankin, and he was like, well, maybe I should just bring on Clemens and Musker. Except they were like, um, we're busy fucking putting out this movie just right now. We have no time to get on this movie. And so it's kind of insane, but he got, um, Truesdale and Wise, who had only directed a five minute short for the Epcot Center theme park in Orlando. So these guys were really untested, um, but it worked, you know? Um, Beauty and the Beast. The other big thing about uh, Ashman and Mencken. Mencken is they were promised another project that they'd started on. Right. Ashman's baby was always Aladdin. Yep. And they were pulled from Aladdin to work right. on Beauty and the Beast right. and wrote all the songs for Beauty and the Beast. Right. And, I mean, the... the tragically um howard ashman was dying he was on his deathbed yeah um and when uh they had won the oscar for little mermaid even alan minkin didn't know that he had aids and so it came very quickly or um he passed away not even a year after right um he disclosed his status to his friends and um family the saddest story that is told in um waking sleeping beauty is uh, they sh- did an early critic screening yep. for Beauty and the Beast. We rushed from the press presentation, which, as rough as it was, was a huge success. We were high from it, and we came into the cold shock of Howard dying in a hospital room. His mother pulled back the sheets to show us the Beauty and the Beast sweatshirt that he was wearing. He was 80 pounds, had lost his sight, and barely had a whisper of a voice. We shared with him what happened that day and how amazing it was, and how he was there in every way. Then, when it was time to leave... We each said our goodbyes. Before I left, I bent over and whispered, Beauty and the Beast was going to be a great success. Who'd have thought it, I said. And Howard lit up and whispered, I would. It's it's hard as 
queer individuals to talk about Howard Ashman um, right. because of the way that he died. Dying of AIDS is a disease that robbed us of a lot of really talented and important people yeah. that uh, could still be around today. Uh, yeah. And it's wild because their contributions, even as small as they were, were so significant and um, still made a huge yeah. impact uh, beyond and to this day. You know, when people think about like the the new Disney quote new Disney stuff coming out, um, Frozen doesn't exist without Howard Ashman. Right, N- completely. Um, when after the Renaissance ended and those movies were coming out. People are like, the songs aren't the same, you know, right. like it's where the things that we loved are, are not, you know, it's always going to be compared to part of your world, um, be your guest. We truly lost uh, 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 one of the best. And um, even Katzenberg was like, he was like the next Walt Disney, you know, yeah. his he was not only just writing lyrics, but shaping these entire movies. The movie is a huge success. It's the first animated movie to be nominated for Best Picture at the Oscars. Which is exactly why the Oscars creates Best Animated Movie Award to yeah. try to avoid that, which they still don't do because yeah. Disney ends up there a bunch of other times. Yep. Um, and so it's a huge success. Howard Ashman does not survive um, to watch the fin- the movie in its finality, um, but at the end it is dedicated to him um, uh, very beautifully. Um, in 92, we get Aladdin, um, which, like we mentioned, was Howard Ashman's baby they had written a couple songs for that movie. I think that he said he'd written six. They yeah. chose three. Three. Um, and then and they... Up. Well, it's funny. So they, he had even worked on the script for that. Yeah. Katzenberg hated it. Yeah. Um, and so they cut, they had to cut three songs, mostly because they were related to the old script of the movie. Right. Essentially, what had happened was Ashman had uh, written in the character of Aladdin's mother. A lot of the songs had to do with parental things and whatnot. There's a very famous... Uh, day called Black Friday yeah. amongst animators where Katzenberg very much sort of came in and like slaughtered every idea mm-hmm. and told them to to start from ground up with Aladdin. Therefore they they had to to jettison large portions of, of Mencken's and Ashman's score uh, but they brought in Tim Rice mm-hmm. to complete lyrics and write new songs with Mencken. Right. And so the three songs on there that are Howard's are um, Prince Ali, um, Arabian, Nights, Arabian Nights, and Friend Like Me. Right? Yes. Yes. Is it called Arabian Nights? Yeah. yeah. It's Arabian Nights. Yeah. Um, but A Whole New World was written by Tim Rice. Um, this was maybe the first time that like a huge A-level star right. and Robin Williams is brought on board. Um, Katzenberg had a lot of Hollywood friends. I mean, he's the one who essentially got um, Bette Midler into Oliver and Company. So asking Ron Williams wasn't like out of wasn't really out of left field for him. But here's the thing: Robin Williams never wanted to work for Disney. Essentially, he didn't want them to merchandise him. Right. It was weird. I mean, so he also had another movie coming out that year called Toys. He didn't want to be part of the marketing. Of Aladdin because he wanted his name to go f- towards toys and right. his um, relationship with, um, I think the same director was with on whatever he's worked with him before. Um, he said, fine, I'll be in the movie. And, um, there's like a really famous thing where like they animated, uh, like 20 minutes of a standup as the genie and showed it to him. And that's when he was like, okay, fine, I'll come on and do it. Just, I don't want to be part of the marketing, whatever. Katzenberg was like, lol. Um, <laughs> And did anyway. 
Um, the movie was a huge success. Um, a lot of it on the back of Robin Williams. <laughs> truly. I mean, and also like though, what is Aladdin? Right. Without Robin Williams. Though I will say this, and we've, we've talked. Will Smith. Yeah, Will Smith. (laughs) We've talked a lot about labor. Um, I did want to bring up, and this is the, this is the problem with animation, right? So you watch Aladdin, you think, oh, like, who, you know, what's the thing from Aladdin? What's the, you know, it's obviously Robin Williams. No one goes home and says, like, Eric Goldberg is the star of Aladdin. Eric Goldberg is the lead animator of Genie. I read a lot about him. Yeah. And there's a lot of talk of all these different lead animators, but he specifically was the one who, who did Genie and he did Phil and Hercules. These, these are the fucking heroes. And I'm not saying, I mean, Robin Williams, obviously, like, and that's, but the, you know, you commoditize the the things that people see, the front facing things, and do it. So just just if you remember, maybe we'll mention some of the other animators. But if you remember anything, remember Eric Goldberg because yeah. really he's like like every face the genie makes had to be drawn. Yeah, somebody had to put their pen to the paper yeah. to get that. So and um, another really um, uh, kind of like expert level animator was I think his name is Andreas Deja. Yeah, uh, Andreas. Sorry, he and he did most of the villains. So he did. Yeah. He did Jafar. He did um, Scar. The the auditory experience is nothing without like the visual representation. Right. Like in animation, obviously there's no like limit to um, you know your imagination. So they had to figure out what is the genie going to look like, especially when he's going a mile a minute in Robin Williams' crazy fucking um, riffing. The it's funny that you would bring him up because one of my favorite things that he decided was all of the characters in Aladdin would be based off geometric shapes. Yeah. And he decided Jafar wouldn't. Yeah. And he, so he sticks out. He's the one thing that doesn't, it doesn't have like a matching geometric shape. And I think that's really brilliant. Yeah. Um, also Glenn Keane is a big name that you'll hear. He animated, uh, the beast in Beauty and the Beast. He animated Ariel and, uh, in Little Mermaid. Uh, so like you have, and he, he did Tarzan. Oh, so cool. like all these people that, are, you know, are important to this process that you never hear the names of that. Yeah, are, absolutely. You know, I definitely had a birthday party based on Aladdin when oh, I was yeah. a child. Uh, I fucking like. I still got chills in the first the first time the Cave of Wonder pops out of the sand. Yeah, it's a full banger. It wins um, another Oscar, two Oscars for score and song for A Whole New World. Uh, next up is The Lion King um, in 1994, um, directed by Rob Minkoff and Roger Allers. The Lion King is a little controversial. Um, uh, but also it is probably the pinnacle. Most people would yes. say the pinnacle of the Disney Renaissance, um, which is, uh, very surprising. I think a lot of animators would say that they did not see that coming. Katzenberg had called everybody into their office after Aladdin. The two big things that were moving <laughs> along were Lion King and Pocahontas, which we'll get to next. And in the meeting, we have the whole crew from Pocahontas and Lion King. And Jeffrey says, Pocahontas is a home run. It's West Side Story. It's Romeo and Juliet with, with American Indians. It's a, it's a hit. It's got a hit written all over it. Lion King, on the other hand, is kind of an experiment. We don't really know if anybody's going to really want to see it. And after that meeting, absolutely no one wanted to work on Lion King. Surprise, bitch. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, and Lion King was a risk. And I don't think people like maybe... People don't talk enough about how risky it was. <laughs> no, what I'm except so- for fans of Kimba the White Lion. Anyway, uh, uh, <laughs> we'll get to that. Um, no, but so this was the first movie in a long time that yeah. was had no humans in it, none whatsoever. This yeah. was all animals, and uh, and also Elton John's here. I was gonna say, and what's interesting about the score to it is that it's Tim Rice and Elton John, and uh, also though 
Hans Zimmer. And Hans Zimmer. The interesting thing about Tim Rice and Alan Menken was uh, Menken had some issues working with Tim Rice because Tim Rice can also write music. Mm. And he wasn't used to that because when he worked with Howard Ashman, Howard Ashman was basically like, I, like, I know music, but like, it's not my, not my place. Yeah. And so they were constantly butting heads. So when you bring in Elton John, who is primarily a lyricist, yeah. who's worked with Tim Rice before, clearly that relationship is going to work a lot better. And I think a lot of, I mean, there's been a lot of interviews where Elton John was like, I'm fucking writing songs about warthogs. Like right. my career's in the fucking shithole. Um, so the expectations were so low. Um, and the movie ends up like taking in half a billion dollars. Yeah. So NBD. Um, should we talk about Kimba? <laughs> I, I mean, just so, just so it's known out there for a long time, uh, it has been said that Disney ripped off the Lion King from, uh, anime TV show, uh, called Kimba the White Lion. Um, but I mean, also, you know, I, I'd never seen Kimba the White Lion. I'm sure there are direct lifts from it. There's direct lifts from everything, but also like the Lion King is also fucking Hamlet. So yeah. that's, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's, um, Suspicious, perhaps, but you know what? Uh, yeah, until until there's until there's a court action, and it's already been twenty years, and there won't be. Like, yeah, the animation studio in Japan basically was like, "We're not suing Disney, you <laughs> fucking idiots!" Right. So, um, but it's a it's a huge success. I remember where I was when I watched Lion King. It was oh, I remember where I was when I see- saw all of these movies except for Tarzan. Um, the- <laughs> I was drunk. Yeah, <laughs> couldn't tell. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I was 45 uh, at the time. <laughs> <laughs> um, like you mentioned, uh, everyone wanted to work on Pocahontas. Yeah. Which was their 1995 release, which honestly I think is a full banger. I know that it's beautiful. It's, it's beautiful. I, I genuinely don't know if they're, we're, we're going to say some bad things about Pocahontas. Yeah. I mean, I guarantee it, but in order to get the good stuff out of the way, I don't know if there is a better looking film no. from the from the Disney Renaissance. I was walking over here like to record and I was like, is it controversial to say that Pocahontas is the most beautiful Disney movie ever I, made? I yeah, I don't think that's incorrect. Now <laughs> culturally insensitive? Yes. yes. <laughs> um it's hard. I mean and we're gonna talk about this a couple more times. Yeah. Not all stories are well well equipped to become Disney movies. Yeah. And a part of the Renaissance and this culture of the Renaissance is going to be revisionist. Yeah. Whether it comes to Pocahontas, Hercules, Hunchback, these are all retellings. They are all straying from the source material. Even when you get, I mean, even Little Mermaid's a retelling revisionist. Right. Like none of these, the, the, the citizens of Denmark were appalled that the ending of Little Mermaid had been changed from its tragic ending until the Queen of Denmark wrote a letter to Disney saying, don't worry, Hans Christian Andersen didn't know how to end his stories. She said, cancel culture is over. <laughs> um, background context. Um, Tim Wells, who was like the headest honcho overseeing Roy E. Disney, uh, Michael Eisner and Jeffrey Katzenberg, he dies in a helicopter crash. Yeah. He's like an extreme sports guy. He's like living his life to the fullest. Yeah. And essentially he is the like, um, uh, he, he's the keeper of the three mad men who are running Disney, yeah. essentially. Um, he's the peacekeeper. Yeah. And once he dies, things go fucking haywire. Katzenberg wants the job. Yeah. Um, everyone wants the job. And, and he thinks that, you know, he's delivered all these hits. Like, why shouldn't it be his job? Um, 
he doesn't get the job. <laughs> All that being said, his presence lingers for a long time. There are a lot of movies that he had been like developing with other people in the time. So, uh, you know, like Pocahontas and uh, even all the way up to Tarzan, really. Yeah. Um, they had been under his, um, you know, he was overlooking his all these purview. movies. Right. Um, but he's out. Everyone was trying to right. repeat the success of Beauty and the Beast, um, as far as <laughs> critically. And then after Lion King, trying to repeat the success financially. Yes. Um, and in his mind, in everyone's mind, Pocahontas was going to be that like American drama romance. Uh, he was said many times that it was going to be the one that won them the best picture. Yeah. And they really, really thought. Yeah. <laughs> they thought. Um, I will say when I rewatched this, I was like, I know every word to this movie. Holy shit. I didn't realize like if someone had asked me like, Oh, what, what Disney movie yeah. do you know the best? I would not have said Pocahontas. And yet maybe bitch, I do. It feels like the movie that like every like school teacher was like, ah, yes, I can show you this because right. history. But at the same time, once again, it's, it's 100% revisionist. Oh yeah. Uh, Pocahontas was 12 years old when she maybe saved John Smith. She might not have even encountered him. Yeah. Um, and you know, there's, there's just all these different like weird things, but it is. I don't know. It's it's so odd. It's such a weird story, I think, for Disney to to go after. It's very weird. I think um the villain is uh not as maybe like fleshed out as he wants to be. Yeah. Um I forgot how little he's actually in it. Right. Um, Governor Radcliffe. Yeah, Ratcliffe. Ratcliffe. Um his little henchman, um Yes, who's Okay. The same voice. Same voice. David Ogden Sears. And I forgot that when he sings his song about gold, yeah. that they duet. And I was like, holy shit. David yeah. Ogden Sears had to, like, duet himself. Incredible. Icon. Legend. <laughs> <Yeah>. Star. <laughs> there are a lot of good critiques of Pocahontas yes. and people who would say that Pocahontas was a mistake yeah. shouldn't have been made at all. Um, Disney went out of its way. That makes it sound like they did so much fucking work. I'm not going to say that. Disney did hire um, Native Americans to be... Right. Um, what's the word I'm a looking for? Like cultural... Uh, guiders. Liaisons. Yeah. And, yeah. And like, like to like look over the material to make sure that they were being respectful, that they weren't being... Um, they weren't using them, right? You know, and they. But also, once again, Disney's a money making factory, so right? Like, that's and I will say there were a lot of na- there are people who were like, oh, fuck you, like th- this, right? And I, I will straight up say, I mean, the songs of this movie are incredible. I will say the um Savages song plays the uh, both sides narrative in a very fucked up way that yeah. is not equal. Yeah. Like, and I understand the whole, like, otherness, otherness, and we don't understand each other, and we hate each other because we don't understand. It works, except when um, one of them is actually, like, fucking maniacal people who bring on genocide. Right. And the other side is just, like, this it, white man is fucking weird. It is. That's what's crazy about it, right? Because the you have the native side, which seems to be like, oh, they're weird and whatnot. But, like, the... It is interesting, at least, that Disney's very forward about the fact that the white people are there to rob and kill. Yeah. And that's, I mean, when John Smith is first introduced... It's all and, savages. And he, and he almost doesn't really get a story arc other than he falls in love, which I guess is that sort of Romeo and Juliet West Side Story thing. But, like, when he's first introduced, they're like, he's an Indian killer. Yeah. And he's the best, and we look up to him. And it's 
it's yes. I will say good for Disney for not like backing away from that because yeah. I remember thinking like in in my new 2019 eyes, you know, oh, they could have like really retreated from that. Yeah. They didn't, but then they also did the like both sides bullshit. Right. But also good, good people on both sides. Yeah, very that. Oh, can I also say in the Renaissance, Disney loves its main characters jumping off of tall fucking buildings. Yeah. They love it. Yeah. She They're jumps cu- off. She jumps off into the waterfall. Huge precursors to Assassin's Creed. <laughs> Famously, Assassin's Creed was based off Pocahontas. Yeah. Oh, exactly. Hello. So true. Square Enix, we see you. Obvious, guys. <laughs> the movie doesn't make as much money. No. Critically, it's probably one of the least, the the lowest rated, ranked, re- rated, reviewed, whatever movie of the Renaissance, which I think is maybe unfair. I don't know. Um, there's, but, I mean, there's some questionable stuff about some of the ratings. Yeah, I mean, please, yes. Um, but the songs are undeniable. Again, wins an Oscar for um, Colors of the Wind. Colors of the Wind, yeah. Um, in '96, we get Hunchback of Notre Dame, which is directed by Gary Trisdale and Kirk Wise, who did Beauty and the Beast. Um, again, this is Disney being like, okay, we gotta go darker, we gotta go deeper, more adult themes. Um, but may- maybe this movie is the most like tonally psycho of the Renaissance because at the same time. Money making machine Disney is like, how about Jason Alexander and right. fart jokes? Right. And that what's crazy is, I mean, this movie deals with lust, infanticide, um, uh, genocide. Yeah. Like, because they keep wanting to exterminate the Roma people. The way the word gypsy is just thrown about in this movie, I'm just like, guys, cool it. <laughs> yeah. Like, it's weird. And so I, I had seen this movie. I saw it again. And, um, it's, uh, there's a lot of, it, it, the movie just tackles a bunch of crazy, crazy things. It's super dark. I went inside an entire YouTube hole. I discovered the Hunchback musicale that yeah. never was. I um, mean, well, it played in Germany. It played in Germany for like two years. Yeah. And then like it never made it to Broadway. Um, but like the score and the whole cast album is on, um, iTunes and you should listen to it because it's yeah. fucking crazy. I, I, the music of this, the best, the yeah, best, the score. Mencken and Schwartz. By the way, just to, Go back to Pocahontas real quick. Mm-hmm. Steven Schwartz, they had written musicals, very famous music. I mean, nowadays people know him for Wicked, but he'd done Godspell and everything. But the funny thing is, is when he was pulled in to do the music for Pocahontas, he had decided to give up writing music and theater altogether and was taking psychology courses at New York University. Guys, don't give up on your dreams. Yeah. How high can the sycamore I mean, grow? And once again, Steven Schwartz has since written wicked hello so like yeah um so drop out of school guys (laughs) if you cut it down you'll never know yeah listen to us i don't know how it did not die in the production process risks on risks on risks. how did this movie not frollo is maybe genuinely the most fucked up villain yeah and what's funny is is they he's a religious character in the in the book they've just made him a magistrate in the film but it's still so clear it's clear i mean in the yeah in the movie they're like Judge Frollo, I'm like, that boy is not a judge at all! Right, exactly. Like, he, and he just wants to fuck Esmeralda till yeah. she's dead. The, and like... the most psycho scene is when he's smelling her hair. What are you doing? I was just imagining a rope around that beautiful neck. I know what you were imagining. Yeah! It's uh, crazy! It's crazy. I mean, uh, this movie was rated G. Yeah. Uh, but this, uh, I, I remember. Lo- <laughs> This is very embarrassing. There is a recording out there of, um, out there 
uh, of me singing out there in Spanish. Um, and I did it like in high school. I want all the copies of this. <laughs> they, they have been burned. Um, <laughs> um, but I, so I can't put it in the episode. No, 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 no. We're not doing that. Okay. Um, but Hunchback is a, a huge big swing for, um, Disney. Um, but, uh, get, like it's, it's we're like sliding now like the the, the fortunes of disney and the rent and, and that's all saying like they still made a fuck ton of money yeah absolutely um, and time has been kind to all of these movies um all of these movies will have its defenders all of them have its critics um but that being said on this rewatch for this episode it's hunchback is kind of stands out as this incredible crazy uh you know out of nowhere, yeah. uh, risk-taking thing. I will say, Tom Hulse, though, as the hunchback <gasps> himself, his voice, the voice <sighs> of an angel. Voice and, of an actual angel. Yeah. Mozart himself. Yes. Amadeus. Yeah. Um, after that, we get Ron Clemens and John Musker re-teaming up again for Hercules. Baby, I think you mean Hercules. <laughs> um, Hercules was there trying to... I read that they wanted to do a superhero movie. Yes. Um, and uh, they wanted to also recapture that Aladdin magic um, to do a story that... Uh, Existed nowhere in time, but also commented on like modern things. You're starting to see Disney realizing they're not making the money that they thought they were going to make. And so right. this is the last movie that Alan Menken works on. Yes. Uh, and he composes with lyricist David Zippel. And one of the things I think is interesting is, uh, Menken goes back to the idea that from Little Shop of Horrors of creating a chorus, mm-hmm. this time the muses, yeah. to, to really tell the story, push the story along. I love the muses. The muses, I would say the best parts of Hercules are the muses and Hades. I don't know. I I'll, I will go to bat for one more thing. I think I won't say I'm in love by Megara. Yeah. Maybe one of the best Disney. Oh yeah. Yeah. For sure. No chance. No way. I won't say it. No, no. Megara is definitely a character. I was like, I want to be her. Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. she is a bitch who does not care. Hercules continues to slide, though. In 1998, Mulan is directed by Tony Bancroft and Barry Cook. Um, it is their first foray into Asia, as far as filmmaking goes. Um, Mulan. What can we say about Mulan? Um, it's based off the actual Chinese myth legend right. of, of Fa Mulan. Um, I like when we're in unison. Yes. Um, Fa Mulan is kind of like a Robin Hood character in the sense that like people don't know if she really existed or not. Right. She's just more kind of this, this myth that is told over time. Um, I read that everyone in China thinks that Fa Mulan is from their area. Right. They, you know, no one can um, definitively say where she was from what time she was around in, just that everyone knows the story of Fa Mulan. Right. And, um, story of a girl who pretends to be a man to go fight in the war for her family. Yes. Um, and they bring on Eddie Murphy because they yeah. wanted to try and do like a, a genie situation. Who doesn't want to do it until they tell him he can record his lines in his own basement. Right. <laughs> Yay, Eddie Murphy. Yeah. Um, thank you for showing up and doing the littlest amount that you can. Right. Um, Famously also, uh, was the jumping off point for Christina Aguilera's career. Yes. Reflection. Reflection was the very first single by, this is something I did not know until, very first single by Christina Aguilera. I genuinely thought Genie in a Bottle came out. Oh, no, 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 honey. Yeah. Someone was not watching their movie surfers. I guess not. But you know what that means? 
that Disney gave us burlesque, Louis. Oh, <laughs> we owe them so much. <laughs> um, the other thing I will say about Milan before we move off, uh, two things real quick. Um, there's something flatter about the animation in it that I don't really like. I actually don't think it's as pretty as a lot of them are. I think they said that they were trying... So, because there was no specific point of reference, right. they chose two different dynasties that they liked. Right. One was known for, like, their color scheme. The other was known for, like, just the flourishes. Um, and so, like, when you look at the movie, it's like, there's dragons from, like, X dynasty, and there's also, right. like, just, like, the colors and swirls lot, of another. Apparently, a lot of the Chinese writing in it is just animators' names, which I think is a bad move, because if you're that trying to so fucking sell a movie to China, which they were, they were. Uh, because they had produced a movie that China did not like. The Dalai Lama yeah. documentary. Like, then... It did, it, well, the movie did not do well in China. Yeah. The Chinese government um, didn't... like. They released it like a year later, and then people who did watch it, they were like, this is not the story of Fa Mulan, right. and it looks, she looks too Americanized. And then the other one last thing I want to get to real quick. Uh, the MPA had a huge problem with the phrase cross-dresser yeah. and almost upgraded the score the the, the, the rating rating level uh i will say this uh somebody has calculated the amount of lives lost in, in mulan it is the largest amount of lives lost in any disney animated film mulan herself is responsible for the death of three thousand people during the war sequence um but the, the mpa the was like yeah and the mpa was like we don't like the word cross-dresser yeah children don't understand that Murder? Right. Great. Love right. That. Exactly. The MPA does not want children to ask questions of their parents, but they get death. Mm-hmm. Yay. <laughs> um, and finally, in 1999, we get Tarzan. Yeah. Um, directed by, oh, Chris Buck and Kevin Lima. The new head, I think his name like, is Thomas, whatever, the new head of uh, animation, whatever, he was like, no one's done an animated version of Tarzan. That's crazy. This is yeah. perfect for, um, you know, uh, an animated film. Is it though? Yeah. <laughs> Um, it's known for its deep canvas technology they used when they were doing, tar- like, Tarzan, surfing, or skateboarding. It's a, bo- a bit of both. Because I the, think, like, they... Glenn Keane's idea was was surfing, and then he saw that his kid was into, like... Tony Hawk. Tony Hawk. Yeah. And so they started basing the movements off of that. Yeah. It's something I actually kind of hate. I think it looks really cool in the movie, mm-hmm. but it's one of those things where I'm like, this doesn't make any sense. Also, I did not know that Tony Goldwyn was the voice of Tarzan. Yes. Funny enough, uh, when Tarzan learns English in the movie, they originally wanted him to speak with a British accent and then an American accent when he talked to the apes. Hey. And that way you could differentiate when he was talking to the apes and when he was speaking English. English, uh, but Tony Goldwyn can't do a, a convincing British accent. I mean, that tracks. He's too hot to know things. <laughs> Brendan Fraser auditioned yeah. to be... Twice! Yeah. Um, he did not get it. No, but he did get George of the Jungle. And you know what? He looked hot in that movie. <laughs> it's true. We got the live-action version. I guess that's a... That's yeah, I have a, I have a lot of issues with Tarzan. I, I don't think it's really adaptable for children, and, uh, and maybe just shouldn't be adapted anymore. But that's the... Yeah. Um, that kind of, I mean, we, I'm sure we'll talk, we will talk about more of these, right. um, in our reviews. Um, but essentially what ends the Disney Renaissance was money, you yeah. know, and, and Disney continues to make animated films. You know, they, they move into the fully digital realm with Chicken Little and then Pixar also starts making Disney movies in the middle of the Renaissance. Yeah, I mean, in like like 1997, I think Bugs Life beats out um, Hercules at the box office. Right, it might be Mulan. Whatever, don't check that. Um, but like at these at this time, Pixar is releasing these movies and they are doing better. Like no one would have foreseen that this fucking weird movie called Toy Story right. released in like was it 95? 
no one would have thought that was going to be such a cultural uh, milestone that was going to oversh- <laughs> overshadow 95 was um, Lion King, right. you know? And look, so look, those are two like full bangers that are making tons of money. And while Disney is kind of coming down, Pixar is like still fucking full steam ahead. Right. Um, and I mean, you know, that leads to a lot of heartbreak for a lot of traditional animators. And mm-hmm. this is not to say, and I never want to play this card that like, you know, they're just different. The artists that do Pixar movies are different than the hand-drawn artists, the traditional hand-drawn artists that do animated films. I know a lot of the times they're pitted against each other. I even found some documentaries where they're basically like a lot of the hand-drawn animators are like, fuck this. Wow. Fuck this computer-generated stuff. The public just wants to see computerized stuff these days and basically just going to lay everybody off. It's not the same um, doing it on a computer. It's just you know, it, it, you ha- when you draw something out, there's just so much more you put into those drawings. Well, you do get a sense that people expect these kind of movies. Nobody has a problem uh, when they hear that people uh, that um, Disney is also now doing CG movies. Nobody seems to, oh, okay, that's interesting. But when you tell them there might not be movies like Jungle Book and Lion King and Little Mermaid anymore, they look at you in disbelief. No, no, they wouldn't do that. I said, well, for the moment, it looks that way. That's that's how I put it. And I get it, too. I have to learn new programs all the time as an editor. Yeah, like, you, you sort of have to keep up with it. Um, but, like, that, you know, that it leads to Disney ending their hand-drawn animation department. Yeah. And then, eventually, when the Michael Eisner regime ends, bringing it back. Yeah. Um, but it's a really dark time for Disney animation post the Renaissance. And it happens a lot faster than it did the first time around, yeah. post Black Cauldron. For sure. Um, but that's all for another podcast. Absolutely. Um, let's get into our reviews. Yeah, let's do one stars. My one star review is, and I mean, I didn't pick any backups, so I, I hope there isn't too much crossover, but it is Tarzan. Um, it's mine too. It is? Okay, yeah. yeah. Tarzan is, first of all, it's a hard watch. Um, I started it three times before I finally finished it. It's wild because the, like, official reviews of it are very good. And this is what, this is exactly what I was trying to get at earlier. The reviews are very good. It won an Academy Award. It was the last of the, like, I think post-Pocahontas. Yeah. No movie had won a Best Song Oscar until Tarzan. So Reflection from Mulan did not win. Right. Um, what else would have, um, Go the Distance from Hercules did not win. Out There from Hunchback. Hunchback did not win. And that's fucking psycho to me. Yeah. Um, because fucking Phil Collins. But I mean, yeah. but that also leads to like Phil Collins, I'm sure. Right. Who, I'm not, not shitting on Phil Collins. Oh, I will. Sorry. Adult contemporary should not be in a Disney cartoon. And I like literally the, that movie begins with the like, Two hearts, blah, 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 blah. I couldn't even tell. Like, no, I, I was just so like, the why only, am I, I mean, watching this? I think the You'll Be In My Heart is a very good song. Yes. It's a very good song, but why the fuck is Glenn Close not singing it? Right. Well, that's what I was going to say. The the best part of You'll Be In My Heart is just that little bit that Glenn Close gets very to sing. Just take my hand, hold it tight. I will protect you from all around you. 
I will be here, don't you cry. Glenn Close, like, actual, like, songstress right. of the fucking stage, like, who could have killed it. I mean, whoever's idea... Instead, you have her fucking run around going, ooh, 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 ooh. Yeah, yeah. Like, it's, it's a... I think I, I saw someone somewhere saying, watching Tarzan is kind of like watching the longest music video of your life, because it's just a lot of, uh... Of him doing things, people yeah. doing things, with Phil Collins singing over it. Right. There's so many montages in this movie. I know a lot of a lot of uh, people see the trashing the camp scene as like a highlight of the movie. By like the third verse of that, and not verse because it's only just like, will this end? Do you remember like the the um, on the soundtrack? It was like in sync and Phil Collins. Yeah, and I was like, okay, cool. You guys got. In sync to fucking doo-wop in harmony. Right. Like, um, yeah, it's, I, there's so much, I feel like there's so much not to like. I, uh, there's some bright moments. For those who don't know, I guess I should describe the plot real quick. Uh, Tarzan's family washes up on the shores of Africa. They try and build a life for themselves, but they're killed by a leopard. At the same time, Glenn Close loses his son to Sabor because she's everywhere. I know. Sabor is a hungry girl. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so she adopts this man child and, um. Yeah, she's essentially like rummaging around their old house and yeah. finds yeah. Tarzan. There's blood. There is blood. Like, and many times in this movie. There's a lot of, like, eye acting yeah. from the gorillas. Like, Well, because there has to be, because anytime that you get an emotional moment with the gorillas, fucking Phil Collins has to be there to serenade you with this post-Genesis crap. Yeah. And <laughs> the, the guy, one of the, the, the animator dudes, might have been the fucking directors, who were like... This naked man singing ridiculous. Yeah. And I was like, sir, you hired Rosie O'Donnell right. to be this like very butch right. little gorilla. Finally, one day, uh, some British explorers, Clayton Hunter and, uh, two, uh, Jane and her father who are like, I mean, I guess they're just general scientists? explorers. Yeah, they're kind of scientists. Like They want to study the gorillas. They want to study the gorillas, uh, show up. Clayton just wants to fucking kill the gorillas. Chaos ensues. Clayton dies in one of the most horrific deaths yeah. in all of Disney movies. He yeah. he gets hung by vine, and you see his shadow as his neck breaks. And I will say the one thing I like about this movie: Mini Driver. I was literally fucking comedian genius. Oh, really? Terrified, I was terrified. Suddenly, I was swinging in the vines up in the air, With the swinging, yeah. flying. I was in the in air. In the air, yes, I. And they were surrounded. What did you do? And Daddy, they took my boot. They took. Those are the ones I bought. Was- the scene in which Minnie Driver explains meeting Tarzan was all ad-libbed in the God, recording studio. She's so fucking good. She, she's so good. People don't like her enough. Yeah. And the other plus I'll give is as much as I don't like Clayton as a villain, Clayton, who's an invented villain for the for the movie, mm-hmm. um, is I really like Brian Blessed's voice work. And also, he's the Tarzan yell as well. Oh, that's right. Because Tony Goldwyn couldn't, couldn't do it. Couldn't do it either. Tony Goldwyn. What is he? What was yeah. he doing? Why were you hired? <laughs> um, I, I forgot that the the classic Tarzan yell, yeah. I'm not going to try and do it, but everyone knows that. Yeah. Why didn't they just get Carol Burnett to do it? Hello. Um, I forgot that it was, they kept it. I, I, when I rewatched it, I was yeah. like, oh yeah, they do it quite a few times. They steal a lot from the old Johnny Weissmuller Tarzan movies. The whole like, me Tarzan you Jane thing is from the Johnny Weissmuller the her Jane's outfit towards the end of the movie looks very much like the the Jane outfit from the old so it's interesting that they just kind of public domained those things it was almost like you can sense that 
Disney was like, okay, we need to fucking shake things up and do right. something different because we're clearly on a decline. So we're not going to do like, maybe people are done with musicals, but we'll just have like Phil Collins and you know, whatever. Um, but I, uh, yeah, I, I, I it's, think it was, I, it's ineffective because when, when you're hearing you'll be in my heart out of the mouth of, is her name Kala? I think is yeah. the mother. Um, you get that sense, like that feeling like, oh my God, you know, when, when you, when you hear Ariel singing, I want to be where the people are. You get it from her. Right. When you're getting it from Phil Collins, it right. detaches all the emotion from these characters. Um, when you hear Phil Collins singing, um, who am I? Like, uh, am I a man? Whatever. The creatures right. like me. It's not the creatures like Tarzan. It's the creatures like me. Me, right. Phil Collins. Like, what the fuck? Like, right. Um, and it, it, it fully disconnects from, you know, uh, um, everything else. And it, and that sucks. That sucks. You know, I don't, I don't hate all of it. I actually kind of like Wayne Knight as the elephant. Funny fact about oh, that. Yeah. Woody Allen was originally cast. Yes. Um, Jeffrey mm. Katzenberg called him up from DreamWorks and was like, Hey, if you come star in our movie, Ants will release your next four movies. Yeah. We there's get Wayne lot, Knight. There's a lot of nonsense like that that right. happened. I didn't realize how like shady he like. Yeah. I mean, what we didn't mention also in our re- rewind is like, we get Shrek in the middle, like a late middle of that. And it's, and when, when we all watched Shrek, right. we were like, oh my God, this is fucking amazing. They're making fun of Disney. So edgy, so cool. Right. Little did we fucking know it was because the guy I from mean, Disney was like, let's fucking rip I into mean, them. Lord Farquaad is directly yes, yes, Michael Eisner. Yes. So like, <laughs> directly. I mean, is there anything else that you saw that since we both picked the same movie for our one star review? We talked about the issues with Pocahontas. We talked about the issues with Mulan. I think. Disney should maybe not do so many culturally specific stories. And I think they've kind of learned that they... Do you think, though? I don't know. I I don't think I agree. There, really? I said it. No, I mean... <laughs> no, I... Talk it out. I do... I, I disagree. They they did they did Moana, like... Oh, true. Which is culturally but, specific. But if they're going to do culturally specific, they they have to find a way to... To tell that story in a more authentic way, in a more in a better way, and I think Moana is that is you know the better option, the better version of that. I so going back to I guess like Pocahontas feelings, is it better for them to have not done it at all, as opposed to like right. the representation that it does have? I think, like we said, it's maybe the most beautiful movie that there is. They did hire, um, I want to say, like there was three or four. Um, um, cast members who are native. Um, they had like, you know, native people, um, involved in the process, in the project. Um, they, and which is probably the bare minimum by today's standards. But in 1995, 94, right. when it, when it comes, when it's being in production, I don't know. And I will say, uh, if you, I don't know what's better or what's not. Like, is it better that like, right. People, I, I guess it's incorrect for me to say that they shouldn't do it at all, but there should be uh, a more thorough thought process going in a more thorough, like, this is what we're putting into production. And this is the way we choose to represent it. And also uh, m- a more realistic way of taking the blame. If it doesn't come out the way, you know, because I feel like Disney got very defensive about Pocahontas being like, you know, we did these things and it's like, okay, right. but we're asking you to do a little more. You have more money than God. Right. Please do a little more. Yeah, that's fair. I think the argument of like, you know, oh, they shouldn't have, you know, done this romance, for, you know, when right. clearly she was so young and at the end, they're, they're telling stories based on these things. Right. I don't think it's irresponsible, first of all, to be like, well, I know the story of Pocahontas now because right. her, the real girl's name wasn't even Pocahontas. Right. Like, and so I think it's on 
to be good like media consumers also is a big a little bit part of it. Yeah. Um I But would, that's hard when you're aiming it at children. Sure. Yeah. I just don't think I would ever go to China and be like, "Well, I know Mulan." <laughs> like because you're a sensible person. <laughs> right. But I feel like I've been on vacations and seen those people. <laughs> And they're idiots. Yeah, they're idiots. I agree. I agree. And I'm, I'm not, I feel like I'm not even arguing with you anymore. Like, I, I think we actually kind of agree. But... I think it's just like sensible, like, these, it's all entertainment. And yeah. I am pro changing stories in I mean, the. I any, mean, anytime you tell a story, you're, change, you're changing it. Yeah. You know, a narrative changes based on who's telling it. Right. So. I just, I can't. Like, imagine Hercules being, like, the actual tale of Hercules. Right, like, right. fuck, who cares? Like, know. you know, it's a kid's movie. And, you know, and Mulan, it, these are all kids' movies. And, uh, yeah, Disney, like, I don't know what fucking, like, in anyone's brain is like, I cannot believe they didn't end Hunchback by killing Esmeralda. <laughs> like, what? Like, get over yourselves. Like, you're not coming to Disney for, like, historical, like... Why didn't the Little Mermaid turn into seafoam? Right, like, <laughs> oh my god, I can't believe it. Like... Yeah, get which over once again, by the way, and I tell this story all the time, The Little Mermaid is a story about gay longing huh? because Hans Christian Andersen fell in love with a friend of his and his friend was like, no, no, we're men. And Hans Christian Andersen was like, <laughs> I want to be where the people are. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so he wrote a story about a girl from a different world and she couldn't get the guy and she turns, she dies in the end. And that's what it was like to be gay back then. Anyways, <laughs> and that's what it's like to be gay in seventh grade. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You turn into sea foam. Yeah. <laughs> and I think that brings us to our five-star reviews. So why don't we move into them? I'm going to say something controversial. Oh, I think I know where this is going. My five-star review is, in fact, 1998's Mulan. <laughs> wow. Wow, wow, wow. Yeah. Wow, 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 wow. And a, similarly to how I did not think that I knew Pocahontas as well as I did, if you had asked me last month what was my favorite Disney um, Renaissance movie, I would not have said Mulan. Um, I probably would have said Aladdin, you know, uh, because also it's like I I remember having that birthday party. Yeah. It, it's like something f- familial. But rewatching Mulan, I it, str- it struck me watching all these movies that... There is a formula that they needed to hit. They needed to have, or they wanted to have, like, the big resonant, you know, sweeping epic story. They had to have a kid thing. You know, the comedy part of it. Um, There was probably going to be, like, ballads and, like, great music. Wrap that all together somehow in a nice, shiny little Disney present. I think that Mulan does all of that really well, and I just... For me, Mulan is about expectation. Yeah. And I think, uh, it, the storyline of Mulan and the story of Lee parallel each other so well. They both have these fathers, um, and society's expectations of like who they should be. Um, for those of you who don't know, Mulan, like, I mean, Gavin already said it. Mulan is about, um, a woman who, in this version, dresses, this version, dresses yeah. up as a, a man to take the place of her father to go fight in a war. Um, because Huns are attacking, uh, China. Yeah. Um, I think with their scary black eyes, with their scary, (laughs) but it it also, I think the, I I think the story, like the, the opening, um, number is, um, you'll bring honor to us all. Um, and I think it sets up this really, it, it sets the entire thing up about around like this, Forcing someone into to be something yeah. that they are not. I think she is a work smarter, not harder type of bitch. Like, 
at the beginning, she doesn't do her chores. She instead ties the thing to her dog and makes him run around. And I was like, that's smart. Yeah. She is cunning. In the middle of the movie, when the Huns are about to fucking kill the entire army, and fucking Lee's like, oh, aim the rocket at main bad dude. She's like, you know what? Fuck no. I'm going to aim it towards the mountain, and we can wipe all of them out. Like, that is the same, like, cunning and smartness that she shows since the beginning of the movie, you know? And and I love that because when she's peeing, she's transforming herself to be this male warrior. But all of, like, her strengths and reasons why she is able to save her whole troop is the same thing that she was doing when she was Mulan. Yeah. Um, nothing really has changed within her. So, for those who don't know, Mulan actually... Um, means like wooden orchid which is a magnolia and um, which is like a motif that you see a lot through the movie um and this whole idea about blossoming late but still being as beautiful as everything else um in the end fucking feminism when she fucking defeats the lead hun with a fan bitch <laughs> um i don't know there is something very emotional that got me in the movie um and the not only deconstructing what femininity is because right there's there is a lot of interesting gender stuff which is funny because if you were i think if you were just to listen to the songs if you were just to listen to i'll make a man out of you mm-hmm. and, and these are good songs. i'm not saying anything yep. bad about the songs but like i'll make a man out of you are a girl worth fighting for i think you would kind of be like oh well this is presenting like really weird what i love ge- like about gender norms yeah, yeah. and like binary and and what i love though is like all these numbers that are very strong, like, I think all three of the, like, those two songs paired with, um, You'll Bring Honor to Us All. That's yeah. not the name of the song. Whatever the fuck the name of that song is. Um, they are all performative. Right. They're all performative and showing us the audience that, like, you know, the, the lengths people go to do the thing to impress society, their father, their right. families, um, and how, the toll it takes on these people. The performance of femininity at that opening number, the performance of masculinity in I'll Make a Man Out of You. At the end of I'll Make a Man Out of You, the only reason why Mulan is able to, like, turn the shit around is she uses her fucking head on how to get the arrow on the top of the fucking, like, pole. Like, it's not out of brute strength like the other guy who tries to, like, race up it with his bare hands. She's being smart. She's using her brain. And she keeps bringing it up in, um... A girl worth fighting for. She has that moment where she's like, "What about a girl who uses her mind?" And they're like, "Oh, lol." How about a girl who's got a brain who always speaks her mind? And at the end of the movie, everyone except for that fucking um, Lee character, yeah. they have to break down those norms, and they literally do drag to infiltrate. The a palace yeah. to stop the Huns. It always bugs me that he doesn't do it as well. She saves China, you know. Um, also voiced by uh, Ming Na Wen. Yeah, who's amazing. Amazing. Yeah, voiced singing by um, Leah Salonga, who is also the singing voice of Jasmine, I believe. Yes, I love how at the end Mulan does the thing. She brings back these awards and she's like, I saved China, father, you know, like, please yeah. love me. Like, I don't, reflection is a fucking heartbreaking song. Um, and in the end, the, the dad just throws all that shit aside and is just like, I'm so happy you're back. I love you no matter what. You're my right. daughter. Um, and, uh, and to me, that was really powerful. And I, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It, I liked the cultural specificity of it all. Yeah. Yes. I like Mulan. <laughs> 
So my five-star review is Aladdin, so I guess I'm basic, because you basically just called me earlier. Um, oh, I've called you basic many times, Hindi. <laughs> um, the, the thing I like about Aladdin, um, a lot of it actually has to do with exactly what you're talking about, because I think almost all of these Disney Renaissance movies have some element of expectation. Now, what you're talking about, obviously, is more culturally specific, mm-hmm. and once again... Aladdin culturally has issues too. And yeah. I don't, I don't want to move away from that and be like, oh, but uh, everything in Aladdin's absolutely, you know, like there, there are some, uh, you know, especially the song Arabian Nights, which they've had to rewrite like nine different times <laughs> yeah. at this point. And it's like, mm, Ashman, did you have, well, to did play? you hear that the original pitch? Do you know what the original pitch was? No. That he wanted it to be like a thirties style. Oh, yes. Zoot suit. Yeah, like, like, and you can hear that. You can hear that in Friend Like Me. You can hear that. Wah, in, yeah. Wah, wah. That it, it's got this swing to it. And I kind of, I kind of love that stuff. And it, I, I think what I like about Aladdin is it's got such a different energy than the, the things that precede it. Um, and obviously, like, I feel like the closest they do that again is Hercules <laughs> because they're trying to do that, like, doo wop and move yeah. out of the, you know, the classical, um, show tune yeah. style. Which is not to say that Aladdin's free from show tunes. A whole new world is like a, like cool. high yeah, show tune. Yeah, yeah. You know, one of the things I like about Aladdin too is here's a character who it, it lives in abject poverty, um, and steals to get what he wants. The, the lyrics to, um, one jump, one jump are so funny. Yeah. Um, and like, I love when he's like, you don't appreciate I'm broke. Yeah. Like, and gotta still eat, gotta eat yeah, to live. Yeah. Otherwise we get along wrong. <laughs> <laughs> um, the, uh, and I, I really like the, the characterization of this because I think it's, it's not easy to explain to children what poverty is, that there are people like this. And I think the crux of it, you know, doing this episode, I also decided I was going to watch the remake of Aladdin, which I didn't hate. I'll be honest. Okay. Fun, had fun, like a three-star movie. Not amazing. I actually thought Will Smith did something interesting and different than what Rob Williams did. Unfortunately, they have to complicate the plot because they always fucking have to complicate the plot. I hate it. Um, but the one thing that it was missing that I love from the original Aladdin, and I, to me, it's the crux of everything that happens later in the film, is uh, after one jump, uh, Aladdin and Abu retire to their, their place and they're going to eat the bread that they, they've stolen. And the kids. And Aladdin sees two children who are searching for food and he gives them his bread and then forces Abu to give him his bread. Here. Go on, take it. And that small act says everything about that character that you're going to live with for the next 80 minutes. Do you think that is what makes Aladdin the diamond in the rough? Yeah. I think I've read people being like, how come Aladdin's the one that gets to go in the Cave of Wonders? Like, it is. And the, the thing that makes Aladdin the diamond in the rough is his compassion his want for self-sacrifice, um, the same boy that gives his bread to these starving children is the same boy that frees the genie at the end of the movie. Mm-hmm. And that's what I like because it's it's kind of interesting because Aladdin almost has like, – he has a character arc, but it's small. 
Yeah. And the character arc is just that, like, he is, he starts off the film as himself, and then when he finds the genie is when he starts lying about who he is, mm-hmm. and the genie's the one that's like, no, be yourself. And he goes back to being himself. That, be yourself. Yeah, be exactly. I love that scene. <laughs> that scene is so good. Uh, for those who don't know, Aladdin's tale of a, of a young thief who, uh, gets tricked into going to the Cave of Wonders to get this lamp so this evil royal vizier Jafar can take over the kingdom. Uh, Aladdin keeps it for himself, decides to use it to turn himself to a prince so he can marry the princess. Um, and chaos ensues from there. I love just saying chaos ensues. <laughs> um, and I think that's really the important thing. And earlier we did mention that like Aladdin seems to be a lot less important than a lot of the side characters. I do think that's true. Mm-hmm. I'm not going back on that statement. <laughs> I do think Aladdin is maybe not the, the most entertaining character to watch in that movie, but he's the heart of the movie. And I think without that, you know, you would end up kind of watching a Tarzan movie. Right. You know, uh, obviously Rob Williams is very, very funny as the genie. Jafar is a great villain. Just like classic drama. Yeah. My favorite Iago part maybe is, um, uh, when Jafar's like having the monocle, like, <laughs> and yeah. Iago's like knocking on his hat, like, yeah. and tra- hello, Jafar. <laughs> yeah. So good. It, it's like, I don't know. There's, there's something very charming. Also, I know it's basically like the larger numbers are the only thing that Ashman had left, but I think I think Friend Like Me is so clever and so funny yeah. and so weirdly seamless with who Genie is because you Rob Williams is like a billion non sequiturs, but this song was written before Rob Williams was even thought of in this role. Yeah, which like I is some fucking magic. Yeah. Truly. Um, is your restaurant and I'm your melody. Come on, whisper what it is you want. You ain't never had a friend like me. Yes, sir. We pride ourselves on service. You're the boss, the king, the shah. Say what you wish. It's yours. True dish about a little more baklava. Yeah, I don't know. I, re- I really love the way it comes together. I love the, the message that it sends that it's it's better to be you know, it's the it's the Paddington. It's better to be like good and kind, and things will go your way. I, you know, I like that the, it's very early days of feminism in Disney movies. Jasmine kind of stands up for herself. Yes, she does it, not want to get married. The right. rules are not right, Father. It, in the remake, they they do a little more of that. Unfortunately, they've also written her a new song, and it does not sound like anything else on the soundtrack. <laughs> so I was like, ugh. Like it's, I mean, it's good. She needs like a moment, but like right. Make it sound like the other stuff. I don't know. I will say, I love Aladdin a lot. Aladdin and Jasmine look white as fuck. And the Sultan looks like a baby Santa Claus. Yeah. Um, and I, even though I love them all, it's a little jarring to see them against... I mean, Jafar is really the only one that looks like he could be um, yeah, Middle Eastern. Middle- <laughs> yeah. It's a, that is an interesting... And like I said, I'm not saying Aladdin's right. free from problems. And one of the nice things about the, the remake was... And I'll give the remake this because I th- the thing I hate about these remakes is they feel like cash grabs, regurgitation, money. You know, it's nice that the Lion King remake had a primarily black cast, but also, like, you're just trying to get money. And the Aladdin, what it, what's great is it's a cast of, like, 90% brown people of right. the the remake you know even right. casting a black person as genie you know 
it's nice to see a Hollywood film that makes that much money that has so many non-white faces in it and really give them work. Now there was some controversy where they supposedly were maybe painting some of the stunt people brown. Really? Yeah. Um, yeah, Cerrone. Um, yeah. We can talk more about that in our fast forward, I think. But, but also, yeah, I think, I don't know. I think Aladdin is so sweet and so nice and like, obviously, I don't know. It, of it, the big four, because like people will say like the Renaissance big four will be like Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, Aladdin, and Lion King. Yeah. I agree. And I think Aladdin, to me, stands far and away from the others, even though I do like the others. They're obviously, you yeah. know, bangers for a reason. Um, was there anything else that you saw you like? I mean, um, I have to say, though, Hunchback. Yeah. Did things it's, to me. It's a little underappreciated. And I, re- I really like Steven Schwartz's music to it. If, if if you have the chance, go find the Broadway cast recording. Yeah. It will melt your face off. That movie surprised me on this rewatch. And then obviously, like, we I, do we need to say anything more about Beauty and the Beast or no, I mean, Little Mermaid? They're bril- brilliant and beautiful and, like, yeah. Great songs, yeah. Um, oh, can I please quickly say that I saw Hercules, um, the stage version that they did at oh, the public. Oh, um, And the problems that Hercules encounters in the film... They really reworked for this stage version that maybe one day will go somewhere. I don't know. In the stage show, all I say is like they mind a lot of like, why don't my parents want me? Yeah. Why why won't they just let me come back to Olympus? And there's a line that's like, to be human is to be divine. On the stage, they have Hercules crying. He has this PTSD of, you know, my parents are telling me that I'm a celebrity. I'm not a hero. I'm nobody. In the movie, they won't let him in because he's not a god, right? Right. Because he... In the stage version, it's like, oh, you're, you'll always be a god, but, um, you have to prove yourself and you haven't proven yourself worthy to be up here yet. Um, it was deeply satisfying. I cried. Uh, so I don't know. Just to say that I'm really lucky and happy that I saw that. And hopefully, um, you guys will one day too. Before we move into our fast forward, let's do our mixed reviews reviews. Please. Our joint one star review was Tarzan from 1999. My five star review is 1998. Mulan. And my five-star review was 1992's Aladdin. So now we're going to fast-forward. As you mentioned before, there's no topical reason we're specifically doing the Disney Renaissance, uh, but it is an interesting subject. I actually think it was a listener request from forever and a day ago, and at this point I don't remember, and I'm so sorry if you're still a listener. (laughs) Please continue to still listen. It's. Um, I mean, we're kind of in this, like, I don't know, this boomerang renaissance where it's like you know we have mulan coming out next year they've already said that they're casting for a hunchback live action oh my god josh gad i know i know um keep your josh gad out of my (laughs) out of my hunchback (laughs) Um, i will say i think it's interesting i was thinking about this like I originally was like, there's no reason to be making these remakes. There's no reason to be making these, um, you know, and I, I fully did. I, like you said, the cash grab, cash grab, but you brought up a good, um, point. Is it better to see an Aladdin full of brown people and Disney doing the extra? I don't want to say it's extra, but for them, it's extra. Right. It should be just like the, the thing. Right. To be making a movie that has. Um, that is filled, filling this world with actual, you know, people of that culture. Is it better to see a Lion King that has voice work of, you know, the top black, um, you know, uh, actors of our age than to see the animated version 
that has fucking Jonathan Taylor Thomas. Right. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Because, yes, that is all very good. But I think the animated versions are better. <laughs> right. Like, they are certainly more entertaining. They they look better. There's more interesting stuff you can do in animation. And what's the one thing that we didn't really talk about during the rewind, uh, now that we needed to fill it with more stuff, was <laughs> video. Yeah. You know, video came out and really changed things for Disney. Oh, You know, yeah. they were printing money because they didn't have to do anything to these older films that they'd been keeping in vaults and releasing every seven years. Yeah. Even before that, I want to say they released... 101 Dalmatians three times and it made $30 million the third and final time that they released it, like 20 years after it was initially released. Right. And so they essentially started doing that again with releasing VHS and on top of that being like, what if we just did direct-to-video sequels? Right. And so those were just, I mean, I remember sitting in a Walmart with my sisters watching Aladdin 2. Return of Jafar. Return of Jafar. With Dan Castanella as Genie because Rob Williams was so mad at them. Thank you. And my mom was like, okay, I'm going to go shop now. And we're like, okay, we'll sit here. We saw the entire movie. And I don't know if she knew that the movie was ending. She literally came back as the movie, like, credits were rolling. And she was like, okay, let's go. Wow. And, and like, we bought them. Like, everyone knows Little Mermaid 2, Mulan 2, Hunchback 2. like Pogonis 2. They all had, see, yeah. Lion King had one and a half, too. Yeah. And, like, I mean, they, 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 they were printing money. Yeah. Um, so this feels definitely also cash grabby in that sense. I don't know. And I guess you can also argue, oh, in Beauty and the Beast, this time around, Belle is stronger person. Right. I mean, <laughs> but then the sidebar of that is that, like, I mean, and this, I don't know, the, the singing in the remakes is all Trash. not, yeah, it's all not great. A lot of it's auto-tuned. I mean, Emma Watson was super auto-tuned as Belle. Yeah. I really hated the, the remake of yeah. Beauty and the Beast. Back um, the, yeah, I, I don't, I don't know. It does, it does feel cash garbage, but you're right. There is maybe a chance to like culturally do something unique that they didn't get right around the first time. Between the like frozen, uh, tangled, uh, right. uh, computer animated animation compared with that on top of that we have these live action or whatever the fuck you want to call lion king because it wasn't live action right i welcome any discourse about what value they bring as far as i can tell i the value of having culturally inclusive storytelling i get but at an entertainment value or like um it's kind of like the thing, like when you, when something is brought back to Broadway, what is the thing that makes it relevant now? Like, right. what's the twist? What, what, why is this relevant right. in our culture now? Like, company coming back, like now, the lead is going to be a woman now. Like, right. Or, I mean, Oklahoma is a great case yes. because Oklahoma is ripe for that sort of because the original is a musical where the white characters are singing about how we know we belong to the land and the land we belong to is grand. And they're not a single one of them is an indigenous person. They're all white people, you yeah. know, and it's, it's like a big celebration. And you get this new reinterpretation on Broadway that really talks about anxiety of the land and like sexuality, sexuality and and darkness and, and, you know, and they do it all without changing any lyrics, right. any words. And so it can be done, but it has to, like, there has to be a good reason and a right. good interpreta- interpretation of it. And unfortunately, Disney as a company has proven that they're not, they're, they're, 
<laughs> ideas are not exactly altruistic. They're a money-making machine. It's funny because that was one of the things about doing the research of this episode is I really think prior to the Renaissance and even a little bit post the Renaissance when they brought back their uh, hand-drawn animation department, I think the 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 larger minds, the greater minds thought like we're still, even though we're a very large corporation, we're still this small company that owes something to our audience and that thing is is this thing, this traditional thing that we have. And I don't see it anymore. I think it's, it's like full on corporate machine. It's yeah. all about what gives us the most money. And I fear, cause I think this episode would be a great companion piece to our Pixar episode. Mind you, I have not listened to our Pixar episodes in the two years that we put it out, but I fear that's exactly what's happening with Pixar too, because it's grinding the gears. It's all the sequels. They're starting to do the thing where that, you know, Wally and up were their moment to be like, well, we can go more adult and we can do some more adult interesting stuff. And I think Wally's incredibly successful at it. And I think up is not successful at it at all. I think that opening sequence is really beautiful. And then everything else is a little wonky after that. And I think I said that in that episode and I, and I worried like, cause that's, hunchback territory you know it's yeah. like the the thing where jason alexander as a gargoyle can poop but like then you know frollo's gonna talk about how he wants to fuck a roma woman yeah it's interesting because i wonder don bluth when you think of like great american animation it's not happening on the big screen anymore it's in television and a lot of it is being more daring taking references because there are people our age who grew up on this and want to create those stories and create stories like that. Yeah. Um, but don't have the space for it because Disney is like, no, no new shit. No yeah. new shit allowed. Um, and Pixar is kind of like edging towards that territory. Like never in my life would I have thought like three cars movies would exist. Yeah. That we're at Toy Story four at this point. Right. Which is fine, but like invest in other things. I wonder, like, are we going to get to the point where we're going to have someone like a Don Booth be like, enough. We need competition. Like, right. I would argue the competition of Don Bluth in the late 80s was what sparked the fire under Disney's ass yeah. to be better. They had to. To survive, they needed to prove that they could. Uh, they're still the top dogs. And now it's kind of just like... I think the only thing that scared them during the Renaissance period was Prince of Egypt. Yeah. And that's all because Katzenberg was like, let's do the Disney thing. But he's never been able to replicate it since. Yeah. Not really. Yeah, and yeah, I, I mean, you have the Shrek films, but that's because they're heavy reliance on making fun of Disney. Right. You have Shrek. I mean, and so we still, you, there are other animation studios out there right now. Um, most notably still DreamWorks, right? And they're ab- abominable is coming out soon. <laughs> um, cause they, we need another film about a Yeti. Um, they had their successful ish. I don't know how, like, how to train your dragon, Kung Fu Panda movies, yeah. stuff like that. Um, I don't know if that's really competition. At this point, a lot of those movies kind of feel the same when you think of like the Ice Age movies. Yeah. No, and they certainly they certainly have their fans and they have their place. But yeah, I, I still don't think they they are seen. No one is doing fairy tales right the way that Disney does. And even Disney has announced recently that they scrapped a Jack and the yeah. Beanstalk that they were been planning for a while. Right. So. Um, which who knows? I mean, I don't. It's hard to, like, expect anything from Disney. Yeah. You know? And maybe that's why people love just looking back on the Renaissance so fondly. When you watch the movies now, you kind of, like, look back on the Renaissance and you're like, holy fuck, like, what a special time um, and moment um, that truly, you know, maybe it's because we got too far from, like, Howard Ashman and his work. Yeah. Um, Maybe it was because of fatigue. Like, by the time you get to Hercules, 
the the formula is all the same. You know, you have yeah. your I want song, you have like the trials and blah, 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 the, the twist, whatever. Um, oh, I'll also say, you know, the villains of the Renaissance, you know that they're villains. Yeah. They tell you right away, I am bad. This is why. Movies now in Disney are all like sneaky shit. Like yeah. it's, uh, you know, in Frozen, it's like, ah, oh, the twist, that guy's the bad guy. It feels like the formula now is, is, does not work or is, yeah. they don't know what the new formula is. Um, they are back to just naming their fucking movies, um, with verbs. Yeah. Um, and it sucks, but you know, will we go see Frozen 2? Probably. Probably. Trailer just came out this week and yeah. yeah. Um, but. So less Josh Gad, please. Less Josh Gad in everything, I would say. <laughs> but, uh, I, I think that's actually a really good way to wrap up the Renaissance. I think it is definitely something to look back at, to appreciate the artistry of what went into it and all, all of the people that worked on it. And, and, and also this like sort of guiding narrative that like, and this is, I, I love Tangled, you know, I love Record Ralph. Like there are still good Disney movies coming out, but I, w- what I will say is like, go back and watch Pocahontas and just like look at it. Right. It's fucking yeah, gorgeous. Even if you turn the sound off, like yeah. it's a feast for it's, the senses. It's colors of the wind. Yeah. Insane. Um, when you look at Aladdin, the, the colors when he's in the cave of wonders. Yeah. Holy shit. Um, it, you, even Lion King when I can't wait to be king. Hello. Yeah. Like you, we don't, you don't get that. Um, and I, uh, I don't know. Maybe with this, uh, resurgence of, uh, remakes, that also means that there are people like us who grew up on these who are still wanting to make movies like this yeah and we'll get another renaissance soon um who knows one hopes uh even if it doesn't come from disney yeah be honest be honest gavin please yeah (laughs) so i think that wraps up this episode of the mixed reviews uh you can find us online we're pretty much everywhere you can find us on twitter at at the mixed reviews we're on instagram oh we're on instagram just the underscore mix underscore reviews uh, you can email us at reviewsmixed at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just search The Mixed Reviews. And also, we're on every podcast catcher out there. We're on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher Radio, uh, Spotify, iHeartMedia, uh, Google Play Music. And if you listen to us on Apple Podcasts, please rate and review us. Leave us a nice five-star review and tell us what you think about the show. And if and you we'll don't, re- dishonor your cow, dishonor your family. <laughs> yes. <laughs> We, uh, we'll read it on the show. I promise I'm getting to that one. I promise. Uh, but yes, uh, please come back in two weeks. Uh, it's the start of our spooky season. Oh my god, it so, is. Yeah, so we are going to... Don't worry, not too spooky this year. We're not going to... Not, I mean, spooky enough. Spooky enough. But uh, we'll see you in two weeks. Bye, guys. Bye-bye. Under the sea. Under the sea. Nobody beat us, fry us, and eat us in fricassee. We want the land for snugs to cook Under the sea we have to hook up We got no trouble Life is the bubbles under the sea Under the sea Under the sea, under the sea. Since life is sweet here We got to be here naturally